Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. My beloved, this morning in this uh, first Sunday of the Blessed Month of Amshir, if you listen to the psalm in the beginning, the psalmist says, and the psalm of course is the introduction you know, to the gospel, um, it says, Honor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. So he's saying here, the Lord is great and it's good for us and we ought to praise him as being great. He is to be feared above all gods. So he ought to be feared above all else. And a couple of weeks ago we began speaking about how we keep God holy. And this distinction between what is holy and what is common. And we said it was very significant and God really wanted us to understand this difference between what is holy and what is common. Common is like they said it was unholy, but it doesn't mean it was bad, as we said. But it's just it was the ordinary. And we said that um, the dangers of disregarding the holiness of God and the things he considered as holy, we said, number one, that it's a disrespect to God himself. Number two, that there is a desacralization of what is holy. And the result of this making things unholy that ought to be holy, it said that it resulted in an indifference in our human heart. Indifference. What's holy, what's common, it's all the same. You know, God or the church, the house, the soccer field, everything is uh, the same. It loses its value. Um, and we also said that we lose our guidance and our moral compass when there's no distinction between what's holy and what is not, then what guides us in our life? Everything becomes permissible. And perhaps the last you know, point that I didn't mention last time about the dangers of this is that being a stumbling block to others. When I myself carry my life and I don't make distinction between what is holy and what is common, then I make those around me to stumble. Look what the Lord says about this. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So he warns us. That because if I disregard what is holy for God, then I become a stumbling block to the younger believers. When I become this stumbling block, the Lord says of me that it's better if a millstone were hung on my neck and I was drowned in the sea. This is scary. This is coming from the Lord, who we know to be merciful, kind, and gentle, and everything else. But when it comes to being a stumbling block to the little ones, those who are little in faith, whether young children or adults, he was very strong with. That's one of the dangers. What we'll speak about this morning as we continue this uh, topic is what are the areas in my life that I need to make this distinction between what is holy and what is not? And lastly, how can I better make this distinction in my life? The first area of application of this distinction is the area of time. The area of time. Time, as St. Paul tells us, is a gift from God. He tells us, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So the days are something we ought to give account for. It's a gift from God. The time that was in the past we can no longer attain. All we can really manage is the present moment, and if God permits us to live in the future. Right? So the time is a gift from God, and it's slowly getting less and less and less. Right? My life... I'm getting closer and closer to my eternal life or the afterlife every moment that passes and every day that passes. It's a gift. And it's very clear in Scripture that God has set aside certain times where He regarded to Him to be as holy. Um, and He wanted us to do the same. 
If you remember in the Ten Commandments, one of them was about keeping a certain time holy, which was the Sabbath. And if you read the Ten Commandments, this one perhaps had the most that God had to say about keeping this day holy. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. And it is in it, and in it you shall do no work, nor you, your sons, your, nor your daughters, nor your male servants, nor your female servants, nor cattle, nor stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all things in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and haloed it. So he went to explain. When God created, created the world in six days, and the seventh was the day of rest. And he said the same with you. I want you, your servants, your family, your cattle, everything of you, to rest. It's a day of the, uh, a day of the Lord. And it wasn't a day to be lazy, but it was a day to spend in worship. This is the Lord's day in which we gather together and we worship Him and glorify Him for everything. But what does it mean to keep the, the Lord's day holy? It basically means that we should be dedicated to the spiritual activities during this day. As much as it is in my control. So attending liturgy from the beginning. Um, uh, reading and listening to spiritual words or reading the Bible and scripture with your families. Doing acts of service. Outreach to perhaps those who weren't here today. Um, visiting those who are sick. Serving in some capacity in the church. All of these are spiritual activities that we ought to be doing on the day of the Lord. That's how we keep it holy. That's how we keep it different. And we ought to be determined that nothing, like I said, in my ability, keeps us from keeping this day holy. There are other holy days besides Sunday. For example, the feast days, the days of fasting as we're approaching now, the Holy Great Fast, is a holy time, right? It's a holy time. So that maybe the entertainment that we engage in, usually around other, you know, other times of the year, I'm not engaged in during the great fast. You know, perhaps the movies that I'm watching or the places that I go, I shouldn't be taking vacations and so on, right? As much as possible, right? So keeping these days holy, consecrated for worship and prayer. And again, this was one of the Ten Commandments. So imagine now if I do any particular sin and I do it on the day of the Lord, then it's actually double sin, right? It's the sin itself, and that I did it on the day of the Lord that is holy. Something to consider, perhaps we haven't considered. The next um, <clears throat> place of application or area of application is the places. The places. <clears throat> As we mentioned last time, God, when He uh, instructed the people of Israel to how to build the temple and the tabernacle, He made it such that the Holy of Holies was in the center. And then they surrounded it by a tent. And then outside of that was the holies. And the priests would come there to offer incense. And then they had, you know, the uh, the court of the believers and then the Gentiles. So they had many different distinctions of the holy places. So it's very clear that he says, I want some places to be regarded as holy. And the holy of holies was the place where no one would enter. Except the high priests once a year to offer the atonement sacrifice. And that was it. And when they went in, they would chain like uh, something around his ankle. So if he died while he was inside, no one would go inside, but they would pull him out. Look at how much they considered the place of God to be holy and sanctified. And the New Testament church, in the beginning, they didn't gather in churches or and so on. But what they said, they'd gathered in homes. 
So the idea of the church, when the church began, it was the gathering of the believers together. Just because the believers would gather together in a certain place, it didn't make the place less holy. Nor was it a message saying to desacralize any places of worship. God forbid. Because when the believers were able to have churches, guess what? They regarded and revered the churches in the same way that their forefathers did the Jews in the Old Testament, with great honor. If you go to the old, you know, uh, churches and and uh, and monasteries in Egypt, if you ever get the blessing of being able to go, you'll find the old churches. They have like the the hageb is not very like open. It's very closed, right? And I remember went to one church where even the doors in the here were completely wood, and the only thing that was open was a little window. And this window was the only thing that would enter this window would be the hamal, the, the korban that would be used to be the body of Christ. They looked at this with such reverence. The place was very um, holy. And again, we ought to make this distinction in our life. The church should be very different than the soccer field, the school, or even, you know, to some degree, our homes. It should be very different. And if you remember, this is not something that was only an issue in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. One of the major things that Christ had a problem with, especially when he began his ministry, when he ended his ministry, was what the uh, people were doing inside the temple. If you remember on uh, on Monday of Holy Pascha, one of the first things we remember is the cleansing of the temple. right? What did the Lord say when he went in the temple? He says, my house is a house of what? Of prayer. And you have made it into what? A den of thieves. So saying, my house ought to be holy, a place of worship, and you have changed it into a marketplace. And he was upset. They, they disregarded the holiness of his house. To the point where he overturned the money changers and their tables. So how do we make the place, this church, a holy place? It's about, one, maybe uh, not speaking about common things. You know, we're still in the church at the end of the Divine Liturgy. And as soon as Abuna stands here to do the announcement, we start chit-chatting about things that have nothing to do with the holy place that we're still in. This is still the holy place. When we leave the church, then we can speak about common things. Yes, maybe the things we're not speaking about are not evil or sinful, but it's still not keeping the sanctity of the church that we ought to keep. Speaking loudly in the church, again, the holy place has its reverence. You know, none of us would go to the White House and start screaming in the halls. But the places that are places we revere, we speak softly. If you go to a library, they ask you to speak softly. If you go to a museum, they don't like it if you're screaming. Right? Why is the church any different? Running and playing. Again, if you think about any of these other places, we wouldn't allow our children to be running and playing in the White House in case they break something that we could never afford. Right? Again, why do we do this in the house of God? How we come dressed to the house of God? Do we come dressed in a way that fits the glory of the one we're going to meet? Or is the t-shirt that I wear to school or to the playground is what I wear to the church? This shouldn't be the case. We ought to be setting the example as parents and certainly teaching our children how to come and approach the holy places. That's why in the psalmist it says, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. In fear of you. In your fear, in your reverence. So in your reverence, in fear of you, I will come to your temple and worship you. Do you remember the story of St. Mary of Egypt? 
She was lived a sinful life and she wanted to go to one of the churches in Jerusalem. And when she went there, she was prevented from entering into the church because she wasn't prepared. She didn't consider it as a holy place. Only when she repented and vowed that she would never go back to her sin was she permitted to go into the church. Do we have the same kind of sense every time we come into the church? Or we come in as if this is a common place, whether I'm prepared or not prepared, I come in. I think just because I make the sign of the cross, that makes me holy. We need to be careful. Again, the psalmist says, Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. Holiness befits our holy... His holiness is worthy of our reverence and our uh, uh, adorning him with such reverence and honor. The third area where you can apply the distinction between the common and the holy are persons, are persons. <clears throat> and these are people, perhaps there's a certain level of consecration or responsibility that we have before God. And the general rule is the more consecrated or the more responsible you are, the greater the accountability before God will be. For example, the believers who were baptized and say that we are Christian, we have a greater responsibility before God than the people who are atheists and have no idea anything about God. We have a greater responsibility. This is why St. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable perfect will of God. So the children of God, we ought to have this renewed mind, right? Transformed, you know, demeanor and action and everything. Because we ought to be different than the rest of the world. This is one level of consecration. Another level of consecration, perhaps the, the distinction between the servants and the laity. The people who serve in the holy place, who serve in the church. Those who are dedicated to the service. If you remember in the uh, Old Testament, it had an order called the Order of the Nazarene. Among them were Samuel, you know, and uh, John the Baptist. And when Samuel's mother, or when Samson, sorry, not Samuel, Samson, when Samson's mother was pregnant with Samuel, look at the angel told his mother before he was even born. He says, now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and uh, not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, not uh, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall uh, begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So before he was even born, okay, drinking wine or uh, or cutting one's hair, these things at the time were common things, right? They weren't sinful. But he said to her, because the one who's in your womb is going to be holy, you should refrain from these things from now. And of course, as he grew up, it was the same. And we saw what happened to him when he broke this vow. When he didn't consider this vow to be holy anymore, we saw what happened to him in his humiliation. Saint John the Baptist was, again, the same like a Nazarite. Also, there's a distinction between the clergy as well, whether it be deacons, priests, or bishops, and so on. This is why Saint Paul, when he spoke to his disciple Timothy, he made a distinction in how you should choose people. You shouldn't just choose anybody randomly. But listen to what he says. He says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mysteries of faith with a pure conscience. Meaning, I come here and I'm serving the mysteries with a pure conscience, not like I'm taking it for granted. But let uh, these also first be tested 
and let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. So look to the extent that he made for them, okay, when you choose somebody who's going to be holy, have this criteria. Not only that, look at his wife as well. Right? So here, there's a certain governance in the house that God expects. And again, because there's a certain level of accountability uh, before God. All the deacons here that are, you know, sitting up here, how should we be as deacons? We should be sitting in attention as soldiers, right? We shouldn't be roaming around the church, you know, as if we weren't wearing this tunya. We don't have this responsibility. If you all remember, there was a certain ordination for all the deacons, giving them a higher level of accountability, right? I shouldn't be on our phones. We shouldn't be texting each other. Should be paying attention when there are sermons and so on. We should be chanting together. We shouldn't be, you know, daydreaming. We should be trying to stay in attention. Again, there's a certain level of accountability. And all you parents who are there and have deacons standing here, I hope your eyes are on your children. And as you observe them, we can help educate them when they come home and say, Habibi, you are talking too much. You are on your phone. We shouldn't be doing this. This is not babysitting time. Right? It's not time, okay, finally I got rid of my kids, I can pray. What good is it if you pray and you leave your children to disregard the holy things? What good is that? <clears throat> the fourth area in which uh, we need to make this distinction between common and holy are the things. <clears throat> there are certain things that God regarded as holy, and thus we ought to respect them and keep them holy as, uh, as he asked. If you remember again in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, this was considered to God to be holy. And this is what made the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was the presence of the Ark of the Covenant there. And as I mentioned, only the priests were able to move this uh, this Ark. And there was a story about a man who, as they were moving the Ark, the Ark fell and he tried to catch it and he died. It's in Numbers 4, uh, 4 verse 15, was the commandment that God gave the people of Israel when they were moving this ark. Look what he said. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath, these are the priests, the um, children of Aaron, shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy, uh, they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So if you remember in the story with Uzzah, that they actually put the, the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. This was forbidden. It should have been carried by these poles by the priests only. And then he went and he uh, uh, touched this. So this is a sign that he doesn't regard the things as holy. He just thinks this is something else that he just wants to keep from falling. So immediately he was, you know, he was judged. Sometimes there's an old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. Familiar, things that are familiar to us breeds contempt. Meaning what? The more I do something, the more I take it in contempt or I disregard it at all as being holy. You know, that, khalas, I've been around the house, I've been a deacon for so long, I've been a priest for so long, I've been this for so long. Khalas, it doesn't become holy to me anymore. Perhaps this is what this guy Uzzah's sin really was. When we do not regard the holy things and uh, and and perhaps get used to them, we may be, uh, begin to approach them 
with an irreverent attitude. The same goes for the holy things when it comes to the sacraments of the church. If you'll notice, all of the sacraments, more or less, there's something that is an item or a thing that is holy during this process. We have the wine, we have the water and the, uh, and the oil when we're baptism and chrismation. And the crowning ceremony, we have the crowns and we have the, the clothing and the oil. Right? So there are things that are holy while we practice the holy sacraments. <clears throat> For example, the Eucharist. Some people come and they approach the Eucharist as simply a blessing, the baraka. I can come from outside, having not prayed the liturgy, and I'm coming to Abuna said, I want to take communion. And when Abuna says, you did you pray? I didn't actually Abuna, but nifsi I just want to take communion. They look at this as being baraka. It's just simply a blessing. Is this a blessing like anything else? Or am I really coming to commune, to be in union with Christ? I need to come with the attitude, no, I'm coming to be reconciled with Him through first through repentance. And I want to be united to Him as a husband and wife. Would we any of us accept for our children, to come and take our children and, and marry them? No, we need to get to know them. There needs to be some kind of relationship. Right? So we need to regard the holy things as being holy. <clears throat> and the crowning ceremony. This is again a time, one of the sacraments of the church, one of the mysteries of the church. And then we, during the ceremony, we come dressed as if we were going to the club. And after we have the, we- the wedding ceremony, we go have a reception that perhaps is a reception fitting or a party fitting for hell and not a party fitting for the people of God. How do we keep the things that are God holy? The husband and wife were united in front of God the Father today. And then we go and do these things the moment after. What do you think this does to the, the, to the heart of God? It certainly saddens him that his children disregard his grace and his love to this extent. When it comes to confession, how am I preparing for, con- uh, for confession? Am I preparing to be reconciled to God by a contrite heart and ready to pour out my heart to my beloved? Or am I chatting outside the confession room with my friends, showing, playing videos, playing video games, just waiting for my turn to be called? Where's the contrite heart here that is coming ready to repent. We ought to be in church, if we have on Saturday, being in church, at least sitting in the back, listening to the praises, away from my friends, with this contrite heart, preparing to be, to go into Abuna for confession. And then after I, I say the confession, I kneel before Abuna for him to read the absolution. And Abuna can't reach any of your head. No, I kneel before him. And reverence, not to him, but God who's going to give me the absolution. The priesthood. Do I take what Abuna says seriously for the sake of my repentance? Or do I leave Abuna's office or the confession meeting and I don't like what he said and I say, I'm not going to go to him because he didn't tell me something that I wanted to hear or that I like. Is this showing reverence and holiness to the priesthood? And I say this kid reluctantly because I'm a priest, but I'm going to say this as if I wasn't a priest. How do we greet the priest? You know? Do we just kind of wave to him? Or do when we go see Abuna, we go to him and we kiss his hand and greet him? You know, the kissing of the hand is not something that was originally just for the clergy. You know, back, right? Back in the day, 
they used to kiss the hands of their father when they came home. This was a sign of reverence and honor, right? When we lose the honor and respect for the priesthood, then what he says to us doesn't mean much after that. So this is why we need to teach our children. So look, and again, I'm not saying this because I want this. Again, I told you, I'm saying this reluctantly, right? But I have to say this. Because if I don't say it, who will, right? Forgive me for having to say this, but this is what happens. Do we teach our children to respect and revere Abuna? So that way when he says to us something, we believe him and we honor him and we listen. Not only that, the mysteries, but even the holy things. What happens when we, maybe like I drop the cross, what do we usually do? We pick it up and we do what? We kiss it, right? Regard things that are holy. Some people look at this and might, they might say, you know, as people enter the church, you have people that will kiss the doors of the church. People will prostrate and kiss the ground of the church as they come in. And maybe when I look at this, do I look at this and look, okay, these superstitious, silly people, what are they doing? Do I look at them like this? Or could I look at them and perhaps look and see, look how they honor and revere the church of God? Do I do the same? So how can we, really quick, in just a few minutes, how can we better make this distinction in our life between what is holy and what is common? Number one is call things as they are and treat them accordingly. We call sin, sin and treat it accordingly. We ought to despise it. We call the common things, the things that are unholy, but they're common. We call them as such, they're useful things. But they're not holy things. Holy things we honor and revere because in doing so, we honor and revere God Himself. So call things as they are. Call the sinful things sinful and despise them. Call the common things common and use them in appropriate times. But make the distinction between what is holy and what is not. Number two is observe and learn from those who revere God. We can learn from those people around us. How do they honor God? How do they honor the holy place? When you read stories of the saints, how they honored the holy place. And begin to implement that in your life. Begin to teach, again, those whom you're responsible for. Number three is educate yourself. Educate yourself about the holy things. As I mentioned here, there are many verses in the Bible. There is much to say about this in the church history. Um, in scripture, and traditions of the church. So educate yourself. Read. Listen to sermons and so on. Number four is to teach it to your children. As parents, it's our responsibility to teach them what is holy. When we fail to teach them the distinction between what is holy and what is not, then everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. So number four, we need to teach our children. Spend time speaking to them about what is holy. Insisting that they cross themselves when they're praying. Insisting that when they come before the church, they prostrate in the church. And since, since when they go greet Abuna, they kiss his hand. And when they, you know, and show them how they ought to confess and so on. Teach your children. And lastly is to declare it in the community. My beloved, the time of our silence is ended. We might have said before, America, yani balad And maybe there is more Christians in America than not. But you know what is not? is the voice is no longer the voice of the Christian nowadays. 
right? Although there may be more Christians, but the voice is not the loudest. Their voice is not the prevalent. And such everything else will follow. So when we see that there is something that is defiling the holiness of God, we ought to speak up. We ought to say something, as much as we can. The time of silence is no longer. My beloved, in conclusion, I'll read for you two verses. Number one is what God expects from us. He says, be holy for I am holy. We can't be holy if we don't make the distinction between what is holy and what is common. And if you paid attention to the liturgy, before we take the Eucharist, we pronounce when we say the holies, the Eucharist, are for the holy. Those who are striving to be holy. May God grant us uh, His grace and His strength and His power to make this distinction and to teach those around us and our children. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.